Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza. In tonight's program, we bring you a commentary on the assassination of Honduran environmental activist and indigenous leader of the Lenca people, Berta Cáceres. And we'll feature music by Andy Palacio, Belizean Punta musician, cultural ambassador, and leading activist for the Garifuna people and their culture. He passed away in 2008, leaving behind a legacy of music preserving Garifuna culture from across Central America. We'll also hear about the latest on immigration raids and the fight to stop them. And finally, we'll hear an interview with Nina Serrano, recorded on the field with Mexican field worker and artist Federico Correa. All this y mucho más coming up next. Serrano for La Raza Chronicles with a commentary. Berta Cáceres, Honduran environmental activist and indigenous leader of the Lenca people and co-founder and coordinator of the Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, won the Goldman Environmental Prize last year for a grassroots campaign that successfully pressured the world's largest dam builder to pull out of the Agua Sarca Dam at the Rio Gualcarque in Honduras. On March 2nd of this year, Berta Cáceres was assassinated in her home by armed intruders after years of threats against her life. Twelve environmental defenders were killed in Honduras in 2014, which makes it the most dangerous country in the world relative to its size for activists protecting forests and rivers. Longtime defender of her people and the river, Berta Cáceres was murdered for her resistance to the Aguasarca Dam. Her death prompted international outrage and a coalition of international groups that immediately banded together to stop the project. Less than two weeks later, thousands of people all over the world celebrated their rivers for the 19th annual International Day of Action for Rivers. It was both the time of celebration and mourning as river defenders worldwide stood in solidarity with Berta Cáceres while also raising their voices for their own rivers. Berta's death was a reminder of the mortal dangers river defenders face. At a time when indigenous land rights are being trampled on around the globe and indigenous leaders are facing life-threatening violence, a ray of light has appeared in Sarawak, Malaysian Borneo. Communities that had fought the Baram Dam for years rejoiced as Sarawak's chief minister, Adedan, announced he was returning land rights to the community, putting an end to the proposed dam. Another ray of hope on our side of the Pacific Ocean is an agreement to take out four dams from the Klamath River, and it was signed by the governors of California and Oregon and Pacific Corp., the owners of the dam. As this shows, this is a fight we can win, one river at a time. After Berta's death, 
civil society groups, including International Rivers, coordinated an international response to the murders in Honduras, including actions directly targeting the dam's funders. Within a week, hundreds of photos from all over the globe taken on International Day of Action for Rivers show the faces of the movement, the beautiful, joyous, courageous river defenders who choose to defend life over short-term profits. In the U.S., nationwide demonstrations were held outside of the federal building and the U.S. aid offices to mourn the indigenous land rights leader, Berta Cáceres. CISPES, the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, joined the demonstrations throughout the U.S. Krista Lee Hansen, former CISPES program director, said in part, quote, Berta Cáceres gave her life for the protection of humanity and the planet. She inspired us to be more courageous, more audacious, and more revolutionary, unquote. The Central American Solidarity Movement in the United States is committed to keeping Berta's legacy alive, joining with allies to cut all U.S. security aid and funding for environmentally destructive meta-projects in Central America. On a more personal note, reflecting as I have after seeing so many moving Internet tributes and clips of Berta, I realize once again that we are all one. We are all drinking and being hydrated by the same river. I was so shocked as a child to learn that all the water here on Earth is all the water we have. It is constantly recirculated in the water cycle, the continuous process by which water circulates throughout the Earth and atmosphere through evaporation, condensation, precipitation, and the transpiration of plants and animals, also called the hydrologic cycle. It is the journey water takes as it moves from land to the sky and back again. As a child, I had thought each new rain brought new water from the heavens. But just as the timeless Mayan idea of in Lakesh, you are the other me, suggests we are all one. Drinking and bathing in the same water as our ancestors and each other, no matter who we are and where we are, this is all the water we have. We all have the right to clean water. Berta Cáceres struggled to preserve it for her Lenca people, their land, way of life, and for all living beings, plants, and animals. Berta Cáceres, presente. This has been Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicle. Wow, 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 wow,
baba funasa ayanu hagari funanuma amunyege kaba funasa aruma hanuma o amunyege kaba funasa adugraha wa o amunyege agenda kwati You were just listening to the song titled In Times to Come by Garifuna artist Andy Palacio. 
a Belizean punta musician, cultural ambassador, and leading activist for the Garifuna people and their culture. He passed away in 2008. The song is off of the internationally acclaimed album Watina, which brought worldwide attention to the Garifuna people, their culture, and their language. Andy Palacio was named UNESCO Artist of Peace and won the prestigious Womex Award for the album. This is Edgardo Servano Soto, and you're listening to La Raza Chronicles. The United States deports thousands of migrants each year to Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, which are considered to be the three of the most dangerous countries in the world outside of quote-unquote war zones. Known as the Northern Triangle, each country is experiencing endemic levels of violence. Yet, in 2015, according to official numbers by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, nearly 75,000 migrants were deported to the Northern Triangle. While no official government statistics on murders of deportees once they return currently exist, an independent academic study from San Diego State University identified up to 83 U.S. deportees were murdered upon their return to El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. The numbers are estimated to be higher. Over the line joining us today is Alexis Teodoro from the National Day Labor Organizing Network to speak on their current efforts to stop the deportation of Francisco Aguirre to El Salvador. Thank you, Alexis, for joining us at La Raza Chronicles. Yeah, thank you, Edgardo, for having me. Alexis, tell us who Francisco Alguire is and the current circumstances he and his family are in. Yeah, so Francisco Aguirre is a Salvadorian community organizer that lives in Portland, Oregon. He uh, used to be a day laborer in Portland, and he originally came as a child migrant from El Salvador fleeing the violence. You know, Francisco was able to, uh, you know, unfortunately experience the political turmoil that even uh, the federal government of this country is responsible for in its involvement in El Salvador. And because of those conditions where he was unsafe at his home country, he came to the United States. Francisco, you know, like a lot of jornaleros, are not your, your, it's not like your dreamer kid. You know, in this country, there exists the good and the bad immigrant. And unfortunately, a lot of jornaleros who are victims of wage theft, but who also because of the uh, the legal system in this country and its discriminatory practices towards immigrants and people of color, a lot of jornaleros, you know, get criminalized. A lot of jornaleros, you know, come in contact with the criminal justice system, and so has Francisco. Francisco was deported in 2000, and because he would be killed if he would remain in El Salvador, he decided to come back to the United States. He's been in the United States. He formed a family. He has two U.S. citizen daughters. And two years ago, you know, when he was at a uh, community event and he had like a, a Salvadorian drink called chicha, um, he had one drink, drove home, was pulled over, and he was charged with a DUI. Now, according to the priority enforcement program, when you have a DUI, you become priority for deportation. So the Department of Homeland Security came to his home to pick him up. Because Francisco knows his rights, he didn't let them in, and he 
called the community. Right away, they responded. DHS didn't took him that day, and instead, Francisco went into sanctuary at Agustana Lutheran Church. This was back in 2014. You know, he was in sanctuary for 81 days, and, the, and ICE couldn't deport him because he was protected by his community. So what ICE instead did, shared the information of Francisco with the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice is trying to prosecute him on federal charges for re-entering the country after being deported. So right now, Francisco is facing federal charges for coming back to the United States after being deported. And at the moment, we are awaiting a response from U.S. Attorney Billy Williams, which is the, uh, the attorney on file on behalf of the government, to drop the charges because he has the discretion to do so. And in our opinion, and then the opinion of the community has supported him, the sanctuary movement in general, we believe that Francisco should remain in this country. His, charge, his federal reentry charges should be dropped. And that the federal government should grant him a U visa because he's been a victim of a crime before, and that's something else that he's actually waiting for as well. Alexis, you've mentioned the sanctuary movement and Francisco Aguirre advocating for a, a U visa. What are the ways that undocumented migrants can remain in a country who, if returned back to their home country, would face violence? Is it through asylum, temporary protection status? You know, it kind of kind of varies by case by case. Every person has a case to themselves, a story to themselves. You know, the case of Francisco is very common among Central Americans and actually also uh, folks from Honduras and Guatemala, you know, what we call the Triangle Country. You know, there's been a surge of, you know, children, mothers, families coming to the United States fleeing violence. So at, at least right now, even with the campaign Unidos con Francisco, which is the campaign that was created to uh, advocate for Francisco, we're also demanding temporary protective status for the, from the federal government to Central American immigrants. You know, temporary protective status is a status that was originally given to Salvadorians as well back in the 80s when they were fleeing the Civil War. Temporary protective status is just a type of prosecutorial discretion. It is temporary. It doesn't lead to permanent status. And that's unfortunately the case of a lot of the 11 million undocumented people in this country, you know, including my parents, you know, who, because DAPA is in the court, because there isn't some type of pathway for citizenship, most of our community members still have to wait for something more permanent. And, and even the programs that exist now, like the court action, prosecutorial discretion, you know, those are all temporary. You know, and, and again, I want to go back to the case of Francisco. Francisco, on top of the fact that he's facing federal charges, on the immigration side, many years ago, he was a victim of assault. And a crime like assault uh, makes you eligible for a U visa. So right now... We were able to get the certification from the Portland Police Department. Uh, Francisco's uh, visa attorney already submitted the application, and we're still waiting on response. You know, but, you know, if you're an undocumented person in the U.S. and you're a victim of a crime, you may want to look into the visa. You know, if you have U.S. citizen children, you may want to look into being petitioned by your U.S. citizen children, you know, through that process. And, and there's a whole array of avenues, but at the end of the day, what I want to emphasize is that the federal government and the Obama administration have the authority to exercise discretion on any case at any point in time. 
You know, one thing that people need to know is that ICE, you know, even though they have this authority, they don't use it as much as they should. And that's why we have so many people in detention now. That's why we have people who shouldn't be deported, getting deported, and some of them even to their death. You know, such is the case of a lot of Central American youth as well. And unfortunately, you know, we still have to uh, right now, you know, fight and continue to organize to create something at the federal level that will grant permanent protection, you know, for Central American, for Francisco, but for the rest of the 11 undocumented people in this country. You know, every single policy that, that we can think of always draws this line that there are good and bad immigrants. You know, the recent priority enforcement program that the Obama administration created, you know, two years ago, um, also does that. You know, there's a lot more people that are being picked up with DUIs from many years ago. There's a lot of people in the community that are being picked up for domestic violence charges. There's a lot of people that are being picked up for criminal convictions that have happened many years ago. And even though people have served their time, even though people have done what the system has been asking them to do, you know, they pay their dues. Why is it that because, you know, somebody is undocumented, needs to be punished twice for the same crime? You know, and in the case of Francisco, he's being persecuted for coming back to the U.S. after being deported. But you know what? You know, coming back to the U.S. because you're fleeing violence and you fear for your life shouldn't be a crime. Instead, Francisco should, ha- should get the help and the support that this country could provide him, you know, which they can exercise discretion in dropping the charges. They could grant him, you know, protection. And they could definitely grant temporary protective status to every single Central American that's here and, and Central Americans who will come in the future. Because the violence that's going on right now in Latin America, it's not going to end. It's not going to end. I have on the line Alexis Teodoro from the National Day Labor Organizing Network. I'm Edgardo Servano Soto, and you're listening to La Raza Chronicles. Alexis, I want to return to Francisco's case. Francisco's son, Moises, was detained by the Department of Homeland Security and deported to El Salvador, and months later, he was killed. Can you talk to us about Francisco's son, Moises, and how the family is dealing with this very tragic situation? Yeah, unfortunately, Moises, you know, was killed in El Salvador. Um, he was, you know, in removal proceedings. You know, he had come to the U.S. in 2013, you know, also fleeing El Salvador. Um, and he was living here in Portland, Oregon. He had become part of this community. But because of the level of trauma that Moisek experienced while being detained, that three months that he was in ICE custody in Texas, in a Texas detention center, where they traumatized him. So he was always very afraid of officials, of any kind of police, any kind of person that resembled an ICE agent. He had to deal with a lot of that trauma. You know, I recall an incident that Francisco described to me that when ICE agents came to his home to take Francisco, Moises was hiding under the bed of his room because they felt that they were coming for him. Um, as a result, this trauma and other personal family circumstances, Moises went back to El Salvador and because he felt that he was going to lose his case if he remained. And when he went back to El Salvador, you know, unfortunately, he was killed. And even the federal government now is still sending letters to Francisco's home telling them that Moises has a court on April 23rd. But Moises is no longer here. He's no longer with us. He's resting in peace now. But, but it's another example of the level of violence, you know, the level of 
not having enough protection in El Salvador that leads people to unfortunately have to experience these circumstances. If Francisco is deported, we know that the same faith that Moises was met with, it's the same faith for Francisco. And that is why, you know, we're urging the, the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney Billy Williams in Oregon, to drop the charges on Francisco, but also, you know, the overall message to the Obama administration and the Department of Homeland Security is that there needs to be temporary protective status for the Triangle countries. There needs to be more protection, you know, for children, families, and mothers who flee the violence in their country. Can you talk about where's the involvement of the the Salvadoran government and how are the, the U.S. and the Salvadoran government approaching immigration, deportation, refugees? What's the policy that they have currently around this? You know, at least when it comes to Francisco's case, um, the federal government, you know, is very, uh, very punitive, you know, um, Francisco's reentry charge is from over 15 years ago. You know, even though, you know, when, when you cross the border, you know, the Border Patrol and they detain you, you know, they will press federal charges on you for entering after being deported. But it's very rare when out of nowhere you have the Department of Justice pulling a file from over 15 years ago and saying, hey, this person came back after being deported. You know, do we need to press federal charges on this person? We have no doubt that they did that on Francisco because of his activism, because he took sanctuary. Basically, when, when Francisco took sanctuary in, the, in Agustana Lutheran Church in Portland, there was an entire community behind him, and ICE couldn't get him. You know, the Department of Security couldn't deport Francisco then because there was too much support. So how is it ironic that, you know, when Francisco decides to go into sanctuary, then the Department of Justice, you know, decides to press federal charges for something, you know, for, for coming back to the country after being deported over 15 years ago. So from the federal government's standpoint, they're trying to punish Francisco. On the Salvadorian government side, you know, the Salvadorian government, you know, there's, there's specifically, uh, there's a mayor in El Salvador who's actually providing us with a letter of support for Francisco, uh, you know, describing the conditions in the country, why is it that it's not safe from Francisco to, you know, to be sent back home? Because essentially he'll be sent back to his death. And, and you know, like I said, that's why we have the Unidos con Francisco campaign. That's why we're demanding his charges be dropped. And that's why we're pushing for temporary protective status, you know, for Central Americans that find themselves detained right now, that are in the U.S., and those that will come fleeing more violence, you know, because things are not getting better, you know. And it's very unfortunate that even those that are responsible, you know, kind of wash their hands away from their involvement in, 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 in our country. You know, for example, like, uh, you know, like right now, Hillary Clinton is not even admitting her involvement in, in, the, in the coup that she was, you know, that she helped sort of, you know, be successful in Honduras, you know, which destabilized the country. And it also, you know, contributed to the massive migration of children and families from Honduras. Honduras like El Salvador is one of the most dangerous countries in the world. And the people coming from those places to the United States are seeking protection, you know. And, and, and you know, we're supposed to be living in the land of the free. We're supposed to be in a land that's welcoming of immigrants. But that is not the case for Francisco, and that is not the case for a lot of our Central Americans right now. I have on the line Alexis Teodoro from the National Day Labor Organizing Network. I'm Edgardo Cervano Soto, and you're listening to La Raza Chronicles. 
Alexis, how can our listeners be involved with the campaign for Francisco Alguire? At the website on um, there's a token that people could use to plan their own actions. And we're actually urging as many people as possible to sign the petition that you will also find on the website, you know, so that we can get the charges on the drop. drop. And, uh, and uh, we also have demand that the Department of Homeland Security and the White House grant temporary protective status to Central American refugees, like Moises, like Francisco and others. We're also available organizing. We have a website, ndlon.org. Um, you can also, you know, follow NDLON on Twitter. And we're always working on different deportation cases, on wage theft campaigns. Uh, you know, so if you ever want to get involved or stay on top of us, you know, just follow us on Facebook, Twitter. You can also email us on the website you know, if you want more information. Well, thank you so much, Alexis, for your interview today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. Wow.
That was Andy Palacio, Belizean Punta musician, cultural ambassador, and leading activist for the Garifuna people and their culture. Coming up next, Nina Serrano interviews Mexican field worker turned artist Federico Correa. The interview was recorded in the field earlier last month. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. My guest today is Federico Correa, a California-born artist now living in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico, after a childhood of working in the fields of the Salinas Valley. I became aware of his artwork through Facebook and the Estuary Press website, where I saw a painting of his posted where he was being visited by a bird in his youth while picking carrots in the field. Bienvenido, Federico Correa. Good to be here. Federico, tell us about your journey from farm worker to artist. What was the story of the bird visiting you? Well, the bird is an image that appears in lots of my work, but I think that the origin or the reason I have the bird is I remember long ago reading a poem and the line that God watches over us through little bird's eyes has remained so fascinated with that. Tell us a little about your journey from farm worker to artist. I remember as a young child working in the fields and not having any idea what the future held for me or what I was going to do. As a young man living in Soledad, we worked every summer and every free weekend because there was always work available in the fields. But I do have fond memories of playing with my cousin Isidro. We would play these Knights of the Round Table games, and we assumed Greek names, and we were we were God playing basketball. But we're you know we're, we represent Greece, or he represented Greece. I, I represented Italy or some other country. So one of the things that I do remember is that we were always building something or doing something, creating our own toys or making our own toys and making up our own games. And I think that's eventually that creativity sort of has led me to what I am today. Years ago, Cedro, myself, and my brother Mike, we worked for my aunt Lola, who drove the labor truck. So we had transportation to the fields every day. There was, there was never an excuse on how to get to the fields. But one day we were working thinning lettuce, or as called the saije. This is when the short hoe was legal, el, el cortito. But one day after working eight hours during our five minute break in the afternoon, we scrambled to the truck because it was shady in there. And we decided that we were not gonna work the extra two hours because it was against the law, and we knew that. It was against the law to have miners work a 10-hour day. So we remained in the truck for the break, and we did not come out. However, my Aunt Lola came over and said, you know, fuera, just get to work. And we said we were not going to work because of a state law. And then she said, afuera con tu state law. And we said, we're not going to work. So eventually we did get out and work. So we went out, but we were aware at that point in time that 
that laws were being broken and that uh, we saw the unfairness that was happening in the fields, not only the unfairness connected with our working uh, 10-hour day, but the unfairness that we saw among the other workers who were older men, and there's some women as well, who were working there without any health care, uh, we had no bathrooms, and all the stuff that Cesar Chavez eventually brought up in his drive to unionize farm workers. I've always been painting, doing something, creating something. And it was always great when I would find a shoeshine uh, polish or uh, a discarded kind of paint with a little bit of paint in it. I would always pick it up, bring it home, and start doing something on paper, on wood, anything, any surface that was available. I once did, and I was very proud of it, I did this mural. It was in black and white shoe polish, a mural on our chicken coop wall because I was the largest free wall that I could go ahead and mark up. So I think that was like the beginning of my painting career. Working in the fields was not fun. It was always hard work and you're always exposed to the elements. So what I did, my goal was to work or under a roof. And that to me was a gigantic step up. My first job working under a roof was working for the Soledad Shoe and Clothing Mart, which sold clothes to mostly braceros, that were then brought in from Mexico to work the fields. I was a, a, a security guard. Later, I got a job at the Saldad Bakery. I worked for uh, Frank Romali. There, I started work at uh, midnight till probably seven or eight o'clock in the morning. Later, I worked for Lassen Market, and I worked there for several years on and off, on weekends and during the summer. I never took any college prep courses because I had no hopes or dreams of attending a college, even though my uncle, who went to Gonzales High, went to uh, San Jose State on a scholarship. As much of a role model as he was, I just felt, again, that I didn't have the smarts to do it. So when the family moved to, to Salinas, uh, enrolled at uh, Hartnell Junior College, that's when I began to take some college prep courses. That's when, when I got the bad news that I really, one of, I think, one of my darkest days is when my... I had just taken um, some kind of aptitude test of some kind or a college entrance test of some kind. And I had an appointment to see my counselor, Dr. Sangren at, at uh, Hartnell. And I walked into his office and I sat down by his desk and he looked at me and matter of factly, he said, frankly, Mr. Korea, you're not college material. My whole being just sank. He said, I suggest that you perhaps enroll in a trade school, learn a trade, and that I think would be, you would be better off, you know. Of course, I, you know, trade school, at that point in time, I knew trade school, what is that? So, on leaving his, off, uh, his office, I walked home. Of course, I never told my parents, that's another thing, I never told my parents what Dr. Sangren had said. My parents never asked me for my grades, they just said, go to school. That's all that mattered then. Just go to school, but no direction. So I decided to join the Air Force. Walked over to the recruiter's office. This was during the, the height of the Vietnam War. My recruiter suggested that I maybe perhaps study and become a dental tech. I had no idea what a dental tech is. So I did get in the Air Force, went to Lackland, basic training, then to Montgomery, Alabama, further training. There I learned what I needed to learn to become a dental tech. Most of the kids when I enrolled were all from the West Coast, many from California, Oregon, and Washington State. 
we were asked at one point to donate blood because again the vietnam war was in full speed ahead and they needed blood so they marched us to to an office close to the montgomery state capitol and that was a real eye-opener we were whispering on what we were saying we saw the colored fountains whites only you know signs this is in a government location and we were just shocked and we couldn't believe it much of what was going on in, in that part of the country. Then I was transferred to Alaska and then to New Mexico for another year. And at that time, President Johnson wanted to balance the budget and he was giving folks an early out. I was in the service for three and a half years. I got out. I had, I had my GI Bill. However, I had low GPA. I wanted to bring up my grade point average. So after Hartnell, once I brought my GPA up, it was like a, a B plus a minus average. I applied to two colleges. One was the University of Missouri. The other one was at San Fernando Valley State, which is now Northridge University. So Northridge University. So I says, I'm gone. I'm out of here. <laughs> so I was majoring in the graphic arts and it was, it was heaven then, you know, finally starting this straight road, become a graphic artist. That came to, it was a little, what is it, a turn or a Y or fork in the road. This was a time when Cesar Chavez and the farm worker labor movement was also full speed ahead. The word was out. They needed more brown faces in corporate America. They needed more Chicanos, more Mexican Americans in corporate America. So I thought, well, here I am. Let's do it. So I switched majors, went up to San Jose State because I understood they had a great journalism school and I majored in public relations. I got my BA in, in public relations. It was work, but I, I got it. And once I graduated, I worked for Lockheed Missiles and Space Company. I did my internship with them. Then I worked with them for oh, for maybe a year, year or two, writing human interest stories, which was a lot of fun. Then I transferred up to Kaiser, Kaiser Engineers in Oakland, and I worked there for another several years. And it was it was a great job. I mean, I was making money and shopping at Macy's and wearing a tie and became somebody, I guess. <laughs> you know? So that's when I made the appointment to see Dr. Sandgren and confronted him with my tie and my Macy's suit on. You confronted him with how he had told you you could never go to college. And I said, Dr. Sandgren, you know, I'm here because I've never forgotten your words, your advice. But somehow over the years, I was determined to prove you wrong. And I think I have. Now, the bad part of the story is I wonder how many young people you've said the same thing that you advised me not go to college. You're not college material. That didn't respond the way I did. And those are the people that I just wonder, what on earth are they doing now? And I told him that it was very wrong of him to do that. That's not the way you counsel people. You need to give a light at the end of the tunnel. You didn't do that. You know, you cut it. You just turned everything off. But he didn't turn everything off because today you have work in Bayes Artes. You have had mm -hmm. two art galleries of your own. Mm -hmm. And you're a very productive and wonderful painter. Thank you. Well, yes, I think that I was driven driven to do something in the visual arts. I wanted to do something because that's where my heart is. Because over the years, I've always sort of seen myself as a voyeur. You know, I saw things and I'm unable to really say anything about these. I wanted to give voice to situations that we see, but we, we once we see them, they're gone. And I felt like, like I had some stories to tell and I, I didn't want to write about these stories and I didn't want to just talk about these stories. I wanted to give these stories. A, I wanted 
people to be able to sort of touch these stories with their hands, go to the painting, touch it. And my painting is not precious. I want the painting reflect what's deep inside of us. And I want people to view it as something that's heartfelt. I want the work to relate a story, to say something, to reflect something. And essentially, the artists that, that I gravitate to, artists that impress me, are the artists whose works, when I look at, I see their lives. I see their lives in the image. And that's what I want to do when I paint. I want them, if they see my work, to see a portion or a vignette of my life a life that, that I share with others, a life that I want the work to be universal in some ways. I want the work to be sympathetic. Sympathetic to the viewer? Yes. One of the things that I think I do when I look at a work of art, one that puts me in aesthetic rest, I feel sympathy for, for the work, for the artist. I'm in sympathy with it. That's what draws me to it. The artist is communicating something that is that is not cerebral. Like I said, it's nothing, it's not about line, shape, color, and form. There's a story behind this. There's, there's a story here. There's a feeling to any artist's work that, that resonates with me. 78, it was... The unexpected death of my brother, Stanley, younger brother, changed my whole life. After he was killed, I decided to drop everything in, in the Bay Area. I was living in the Bay Area and living a very good life. So I w traveled south and I got a job. Now that I look back, I, I can look back and say I was mourning my brother's death. I left and had a small apartment. I began working for another garden center, which was more progressive and a bit more money. And that's where I injured my back. I was off for an entire year, it's crawling around the house. I was advised, told by doctors, you, you cannot do physical labor again. So I took some quick courses on tech writing. So I started working for uh, Iden Microwave. Worked for them for a couple of years, then I went on to uh, apply to work at FMC and I got the job, better pay, but then I met my partner, my current partner, and he lived in East Coast, and then there came another fork in the road. Should I go back East or stay here? It's my new job, getting things rolling here once again. So I took the chance and I went back East. One hot, humid afternoon, I came home after an interview and I told my partner, Don, that, you know what, I says, uh, there are no jobs out there and I really don't like what I'm doing to begin with. So. He says, what do you like to do? I said, well, it'd be nice to get back into the arts. He says, why don't you? I says, well, I can't because I'm of a certain age now and you know, I've got to bring home the bacon here. And he says, nope, we can do it. So I enrolled at Old Dominion University in their fine arts program, graduated there. And then I went on to the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore and I got my master's there. The wonderful thing was when I was awarded the Henry Walters Museum Award for the outstanding graduate student. I was on top of the hill. And you've been an artist ever since. Yes, I've been painting ever since. Had problems exhibiting some of my work in many venues. I was never really a commercial artist, mainly because, I, because of what I painted. I wasn't painting tugboats or ducks or lighthouses. It's funny because I had an instructor who said that my work is not Chicano art. And I said, I don't do this marginalized art called Chicano art. I do art. And it's made by a Chicano. You know, a Chicano doesn't have to paint a certain style. I paint whatever I feel. I paint what I feel. What I try to do, I don't really try to do anything really, to be honest. When I approach a canvas, it's 
It's a 50-50 relationship. I have no idea what I'm going to paint. I don't do a sketch before I start. My sketches are in my sketchbook. My paintings are on canvas. But I have no idea of what I'm going to paint. So I mark up the work or the canvas and let the canvas sort of start speaking to me. So it's that relationship that I try to keep all the time. It's not preconceived. It depends on whatever happens. If I see a mark there that eventually turns out to be a palm tree or my grandmother's house, then I just follow that. So how did you wind up in San Juan de Allende? Uh, <laughs> years ago, my other half, Don, had a birthday party for me. And when my birthday present was a trip to San Miguel de Allende. So we went to San Miguel de Allende for two weeks. And long story made short, on the second week, we bought a house. There's something magical about that town. I don't know what it is, but... And, you know, living there has been just a wonderful thing. And you've had exhibits at galleries there. Yeah. To me, the what I think is the most wonderful thing is the Bellas Artes exhibition that I had there last year. It's it's verification because Bellas Artes is part, part of a cana culta, which is the acronym for... Consejo Nacional para los Artes, para Cultural y los Artes. In the gallery I was exhibited in was in the Galería Mexicana, and they only show Mexican artists there. And here I am, this Chicano, Mexican-American guy from California, you know, showing in Bellas Artes. It was, it was an honor. So to me, if I thought, if I die tomorrow, I'm fine. You know, I had my show at Bellas Artes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Where can people see your work? Is it on the web? Yes, I've got an online gallery, and if people do a search for Federico Correa, it'll be the first item that shows up. It's art of Federico Correa. Art of Federico Correa dot com. Yeah. But if they do a Google on Federico Correa, they will get instant in the top of the list is Federico Correa, artist painter. So your website is artdecorea.com. Correct. Well, thank you so much, Federico Correa. Thank you for sharing this beautiful story. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Sigo cruzando ríos, andando selvas, amando el sol. Cada día sigo sacando espinas de lo profundo del corazón. En la noche sigo encendiendo sueños para limpiar con el humo sagrado cada recuerdo. Cuando esqueda tu nombre en la arena blanca con fondo azul. Cuando mire el cielo en la forma cruel de una nube gris, aparezcas tú. Una tarde subo una alta loma, mire el pasado, sabrás que no te he olvidado. to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas, and this is a calendar of Bay Area events and happenings for the week of Tuesday, April 12th through the 19th. For Wednesday, April 13th, join students for Sensible Drug Policy at UC Berkeley 
and California College of the Arts professor Claudia Bernardi in welcoming the Tree of Life mural to UC Berkeley campus. The mural is a six foot high by 30 foot long collaborative and community-based mural project created in May 2015 by 50 undocumented, unaccompanied Central American minors ages 13 to 17, currently incarcerated in a juvenile detention center in the United States. For that evening, they aimed to start the conversation regarding the failed war on drugs and its impact on youth south of the border. They hope to explore the various impacts migration and detention has had on the Latino communities. This is at the UC Berkeley Multicultural Center, 2495 Bancroft Way. That's Suite 220, 4 p.m mcc.berkeley.edu for more information. For April 14th through 16th, Rick Salinas from Culture Clash stars in 57 Chevy, a solo performance written by Emmy award-winning writer Chris Franco. This hilarious and savvy memoir explores the baby boomers generation of double immigrants who first moved from the homelands to the UC Barrios in search of opportunity, then moved up into the suburbs in search of color TV and the middle-class American dream at the Brava Theater, 2781 24th Street in San Francisco. Starts at 8 p.m. Brava.org. For Friday, April 15th, Fandango Jarocho Jam Session. Enjoy a lively evening of music, dance, and zapateado. Bring your dance shoes and instruments, or just come and enjoy at La Peña Cultural Center, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., lapeña.org. For Saturday, April 16th, join local Bay Area vocalist, multi-instrumentalist, Monica Maria and Soli Agua for a night of modern pop and R&B influences mixed with traditional and contemporary sounds of Latin America at Studio Grand in Oakland, 3234 Grand Avenue. Starts at 10 p.m. StudioGrandOakland.org And this has been a calendar of events, Musica y Arte, for the San Francisco Bay Area. To add your event to our list, send us an email at LaRazaChronicles at KPFA.org And for more information on these events or our show, visit us on our Facebook page facebook.com slash La Raza Chronicles. Feliz noches! You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM community-powered radio. If you want to hear this program again or share it with others, you can go to kpfa.org or check us out on SoundCloud. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. And of course, make sure to like us on Facebook to receive regular updates on news, culture, arts, and music desde el mundo latino. We also love to hear feedback from our listeners, so write us at Chronicles at kpfa.org. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of Crónicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles. Hasta la próxima.